17, as been to see a play called Midsummer Night's Dream, but that he will never go again to hear Shakespeare, for it is the most insipid, ridiculous play that ever I saw in my life, and again we read in the diary of Evelyn, another writer who reflects with wonderful accuracy the life and spirit of the restoration, I saw Hamlet played, but now the old plays begin to discuss this refined age, since his majesty's being so long abroad, since Shakespeare and the Elizabethans were no longer interesting, literary men began to imitate the French writers, with whose works they had just grown familiar, and here begins the so-called period of French influence, which shows itself in English literature for the next century, instead of the Italian influence which had been dominant since Spencer and the Elizabethans, one has only to consider for a moment the French writers of this period, Pascal, Bossuet, Fenelon, Malherbe, Cornet, Racine, Noyer, all that brilliant company which makes the reign of Louis XIV the Elizabethan age of French literature, to see how far astray the early writers of the Restoration went in their wretched imitation, when a man takes another for his model, he should copy virtues not vices, but unfortunately many English writers reversed the rule, copying the vices of French comedy without any of its wit or delicacy or abundant ideas, the poems of Rochester, the plays of Dryden, Wycherley, Congreve, Vanbrugh, and Farquhar, all popular in their day, are mostly unreadable. Milton's, Sons of Belial, flowing with insolence and wine, is a good expression of the vile character of the court writers and of the London theatres for thirty years following the Restoration. Such work can never satisfy a people. And when Jeremy Collier, in 1698, published a vigorous attack upon the evil plays and the playwrights of the day, all London, tired of the coarseness and excesses of the Restoration, joined the literary revolution, and the corrupt drama was driven from the stage. With the final rejection of the Restoration drama we reach a crisis in the history of our literature. The old Elizabethan spirit, with its patriotism, its creative vigor, its love of romance, and the Puritan spirit with its moral earnestness and individualism, were both things of the past, and at first there was nothing to take their places. Dryden, the greatest writer of the age, voiced a general complaint when he said that in his prose and poetry he was drawing the outlines of a new art, but had no teacher to instruct him. But literature is a progressive art, and soon the writers of the age developed to mark tendencies of their own, the tendency to realism, and the tendency to that preciseness and elegance of expression which marks our literature for the next hundred years. In realism that island the representation of men exactly as they are, the expression of the plain, and varnished truth without regard to ideals or romance the tendency was at first thoroughly bad. The early restoration writers sought to paint realistic pictures of a corrupt court and society, and, as we have suggested, they emphasized vices rather than virtues, and gave us coarse, low plays without interest or moral significance. Like Hobbes, they saw only the externals of man, his body and appetites, not his soul and its ideals. And so, like most realists, they resemble a man lost in the woods, who wanders aimlessly around in circles, seeing the confusing trees but never the whole forest, and who seldom thinks of climbing the nearest high hill to get his bearings. Later, however, this tendency to realism became more wholesome, while it neglected romantic poetry, in which youth is eternally interested. It led to a keener study of the practical motives which govern human action. The second tendency of the age was toward directness and simplicity of expression, and to this excellent tendency our literature is greatly indebted.
In both the Elizabethan and the Puritan ages the general tendency of writers was towards extravagance of thought and language. Sentences were often involved, and loaded with Latin quotations and classical allusions. The Restoration writers opposed this vigorously. From France they brought back the tendency to regard established rules for writing, to emphasize close reasoning rather than romantic fancy, and to use short, clean-cut sentences without an unnecessary word. We see this French influence in the Royal Society, which had for one of its objects the reform of English prose by getting rid of its swellings of style, and which bound all its members to use a close, naked, natural way of speaking, as near to mathematical plainness as they can. Dryden accepted this excellent rule for his prose, and adopted the heroic couplet, as the next best thing, for the greater part of his poetry, as he tells us himself, and this unpolished rugged verse I chose as fittest for discourse, and nearest prose, it is largely due to him that writers developed that formalism of style, that precise, almost mathematical elegance, miscalled classicism, which ruled English literature for the next century. Another thing which the reader will note with interest in restoration literature is the adoption of the heroic couplet, that island to iambic pentameter lines which rhyme together, as the most suitable form of poetry. Waller, who began to use it in 1623, is generally regarded as the father of the couplet, for he is the first poet to use it consistently in the bulk of his poetry. Chaucer had used the rhyme couplet wonderfully well in his Canterbury Tales. But in Chaucer it is the poetical thought more than the expression which delights us. With the Restoration writers, form counts for everything. Waller and Dryden made the couplet the prevailing literary fashion, and in their hands the couplet becomes closed, that island each pair of lines must contain a complete thought, stated as precisely as possible. Thus Waller writes, the soul's dark cottage, battered and decayed, lets in new light through chinks that time has made. That is a kind of aphorism such as Pope made in large quantities in the following age. It contains a thought, is catchy, quotable, easy to remember, and the Restoration writers delighted in it. Soon this mechanical closed couplet, in which the second line was often made first, almost excluded all other forms of poetry. It was dominant in England for a full century, and we have grown familiar with it, and somewhat weary of its monotony. In such famous poems as Pope's Essay on Man and Goldsmith's Deserted Village, these, however, are essays rather than poems. That even the couplet is capable of melody and variety is shown in Chaucer's Tales and in Keats's Exquisite Endymion. These four things, the tendency to vulgar realism in the drama, a general formalism which came from following set rules, the development of a simpler and more direct prose style and the prevalence of the heroic couplet in poetry are the main characteristics of restoration literature. They are all exemplified in the work of one man, John Dryden. John Dryden 1631-1700 Dryden is the greatest literary figure of the restoration, and in his work we have an excellent reflection of both the good and the evil tendencies of the age in which he lived. If we can think for a moment of literature as a canal of water, we may appreciate the figure that Dryden is the lot by which the waters of English poetry were let down from the mountains of Shakespeare and Milton to the plain of Pope, that island he stands between two very different ages, and serves as a transition from one to the other. Life. Dryden's life contains so many conflicting elements of greatness and littleness that the biographer is continually taken away from the facts, which are his chief concern, to judge motives, which are manifestly outside his knowledge and business. 
judged by his own opinion of himself, as expressed in the numerous prefaces to his works. Dryden was the soul of candor, writing with no other master than literature, and with no other object than to advance the welfare of his age and nation. Judged by his acts, he was apparently a time-server, catering to a depraved audience in his dramas, and dedicating his work with much flattery to those who were easily cajoled by their vanity into sharing their purse and patronage. In this, however, he only followed the general custom of the time, and is above many of his contemporaries. Dryden was born in the village of Eldwinkle, Northamptonshire, in 1631. His family were a prosperous people, who brought him up in the strict Puritan faith, and sent him first to the famous Westminster School and then to Cambridge. He made excellent use of his opportunities and studied eagerly, becoming one of the best educated men of his age, especially in the classics. Though of remarkable literary taste, he showed little evidence of literary ability up to the age of 30. By his training and family connections he was allied to the Puritan party, and his only well-known work of this period, the heroic stanzas, was written on the death of Cromwell, his grandeur he derived from heaven alone, for he was great ere fortune made him so, and wars, like mists that rise against the Sunday made him but greater seem, not greater grow. In these four lines, taken almost at random from the heroic stanzas, we have an epitome of the thought, the preciseness and the polish that mark all his literary work. This poem made Dryden well known, and he was in a fair way to become the new poet of Puritanism when the Restoration made a complete change in his methods. He had come to London for a literary life, and when the Royalists were again in power he placed himself promptly on the winning side. His Bastria Redux, a poem of welcome to Charles I, and his Panegyric to His Sacred Majesty, breathe more devotion to the old goat as the pin was known to his courtiers, than had his earlier poems to Puritanism. In 1667 he became more widely known and popular by his Annus Mirabilis, a narrative poem describing the terrors of the Great Fire in London and some events of the disgraceful war with Holland, but with the theatres reopened and nightly filled, the drama offered the most attractive field to one who made his living by literature, so Dryden turned to the stage and agreed to furnish three plays yearly for the actors of the King's Theatre. For nearly twenty years, the best of his life, Dryden gave himself up to this unfortunate work. Both by nature and habit he seems to have been clean in his personal life, but the stage demanded in clean plays, and Dryden followed his audience. That he deplored this is evident from some of his later work, and we have his statement that he wrote only one play, his best, to please himself. This was all for love, which was written in blank verse most of the others being in rhyme couplets. During this time Dryden had become the best-known literary man of London, and was almost as much a dictator to the literary set which gathered in the taverns and coffee-houses as Ben Jonson had been before him. His work, meanwhile, was rewarded by large financial returns, and by his being appointed poet laureate and collector of the Port of London, the latter office, it may be remembered, had once been held by Chaucer, at fifty years of age and before Jeremy Collier had driven his dramas from the stage, Dryden turned from dramatic work to throw himself into the strife of religion and politics, writing at this period his numerous prose and poetical treatises. In 1682 appeared his Religio Laici Religion of a Layman, defending the Anglican Church against all other sects, especially the Catholics and Presbyterians, but three years later, 
when James I.I. came to the throne with schemes to establish the Roman faith, Dryden turned Catholic and wrote his most famous religious poem, The Hind and the Panther, beginning, A milk-white hind, immortal and unchanged, federal on the lawns and in the forest ranged, without and spotted, innocent within, she feared no danger, for she knew no sin, this hind is a symbol for the Roman Church, and the Anglicans, as a panther, are represented as persecuting the faithful, numerous other sects Calvinists, Anabaptists, Quakers were represented by the wolf, boar, hare, and other animals, which gave the poet an excellent chance for exercising his satire, Dryden's enemies made the accusation, often since repeated, of hypocrisy in thus changing his church, but that he was sincere in the matter can now hardly be questioned, for he knew how to suffer for the faith and to be true to his religion, even when it meant misjudgment and loss of fortune. At the revolution of 1688 he refused allegiance to William of Orange, he was deprived of all his offices and pensions, and as an old man was again thrown back on literature as his only means of livelihood, he went to work with extraordinary courage and energy, writing plays, poems, prefaces for other men, eulogies for funeral occasions, every kind of literary work that men would pay for. His most successful work at this time was his translations, which resulted in the complete Aeneid and many selections from Homer, Ovid, and Juvenal, appearing in English rhyme couplets. His most enduring poem, The Splendid Ode called Alexander's Feast, was written in 1697. Three years later he published his last work, Fables containing poetical paraphrases of the tales of Boccaccio and Chaucer, and the miscellaneous poems of his last years. Long prefaces were the fashion in Dryden's day, and his best critical work is found in his introductions. The preface to the fables is generally admired as an example of the new prose style developed by Dryden and his followers. From the literary viewpoint these last troubled years were the best of Dryden's life though they were made bitter by obscurity and by the criticism of his numerous enemies. He died in 1700 and was buried near Chaucer in Westminster Abbey. Works of Dryden The numerous dramatic works of Dryden are best left in that obscurity into which they have fallen. Now and then they contain a bit of excellent lyric poetry, and in All for Love, another version of Antony and Cleopatra, where he leaves his cherished heroic couplet for the blank verse of Marlowe and Shakespeare. He shows what he might have done had he not sold his talents to a depraved audience. On the whole, reading his plays is like nibbling at a rotting apple, even the good spots are affected by the decay, and one ends by throwing the whole thing into the garbage can, where most of the dramatic works of this period belong. The controversial and satirical poems are on a higher plane, though, it must be confessed, Dryden's satire often strikes us as cutting and revengeful, rather than witty, the best known of these and a masterpiece of its kind, is Absalom and Achitophel, which is undoubtedly the most powerful political satire in our language. Taking the Bible story of David and Absalom, he uses it to ridicule the Whig party and also to revenge himself upon his enemies. Charles I.I. appeared as King David, his natural son, the Duke of Monmouth, who was mixed up in the Rye House plot, paraded as Absalom, Shaftesbury was Achitophel, the evil counselor, and the Duke of Buckingham was satirized as Zimri. The poem had enormous political influence, and raised Dryden, in the opinion of his contemporaries, to the front rank of English poets. Two extracts from the powerful characterizations of the Chitophil and Zimri are given here to show the style and spirit of the whole work. 
Shaftesbury of these the false Achitophel was first, a name to all succeeding ages cursed, for close designs and crooked counsels fit, sagacious, bold, and turbulent of wit, restless, and fixed in principles and place, empowering pleased, impatient of disgrace, a fiery soul, which, working out its way, fretted the pygmy body to decay, a daring pilot in extremity, pleased with the danger, when the waves went high he sought the storms, but for a common fit, would steer to nigh the sands to boast his wit, great wits are sure to madness near allied, and thin partitions to their bounds divide, else why should he, with wealth and honor blessed, refuse his age the needful hours of rest, punish a body which he could not please, bankrupt of life, yet prodigal of ease, and all to leave what with his toil he won, to that infeffered two-legged thing, a son, in friendship false, implacable in hate, resolved to ruin or to rule the state, then seized with fear, yet still affecting fame, usurped a patriot's all-atoning name, so easy still it proves in factious times with public zeal to cancel private crimes, the Duke of Buckingham and some of their chiefs were princes of the land, in the first rank of these did Zimri stand, a man so various, that he seemed to be not one, but all mankind's epitome, stiff in opinions, all was in the wrong, was everything by starts and nothing long, but, in the course of one revolving moon, was chemist, fiddler, statesman, and buffoon, then all for women, painting, rhyming, drinking, besides ten thousand freaks that died in thinking, blessed madman, who could every hour employ with something new to wish or to enjoy, railing and praising were his usual themes, and both, to show his judgment, in extremes, so over-violent, or over-civil, that every man with him was god or devil, of the many miscellaneous poems of Dryden, the curious reader will get an idea of his sustained narrative power from the Annus Mirabilis, the best expression of Dryden's literary genius, however, is found in Alexander's Feast, which is his most enduring ode, and one of the best in our language, as a prose writer Dryden had a very marked influence on our literature in shortening his sentences, and especially in writing naturally, without depending on literary ornamentation to give effect to what he is saying, if we compare his prose with that of Milton, or Brown, or Jeremy Taylor, we note that Dryden cares less for style than any of the others, but takes more pains to state his thought clearly and concisely, as men speak when they wish to be understood, the classical school, which followed the restoration, looked to Dryden as a leader, and to him we owe largely that tendency to exactness of expression which marks our subsequent prose writing. With his prose, Dryden rapidly developed his critical ability, and became the foremost critic of his age. His criticisms, instead of being published as independent works, were generally used as prefaces or introductions to his poetry. The best known of these criticisms are the preface to the fables, of heroic plays, discourse on satire, and especially the Essay of Dramatic Poesy, 1668, which attempts to lay a foundation for all literary criticism. Dryden's influence on literature. Dryden's place among authors is due partly to his great influence on the succeeding age of classicism. Briefly, this influence may be summed up by noting the three new elements which he brought into our literature. These are, one the establishment of the heroic couplet as the fashion for satiric, didactic, and descriptive poetry, to his development of a direct, serviceable prose style such as we still cultivate, and three his development of the art of literary criticism in his essays and in the numerous prefaces to his poems. This is certainly a large work for one man to accomplish.
and Dryden is worthy of honor, though comparatively little of what he wrote is now found on our bookshelves. Samuel Butler 1612-1680, in marked contrast with Dryden, who devoted his life to literature and won his success by hard work, is Samuel Butler, who jumped into fame by a single, careless work, which represents not any serious intent or effort, but the pastime of an idle hour. We are to remember that, though the royalists had triumphed in the restoration, the Puritan spirit was not dead, nor even sleeping and that the Puritan held steadfastly to his own principles, against these principles of justice, truth, and liberty there was no argument, since they expressed the manhood of England, but many of the Puritan practices were open to ridicule, and the royalists, in revenge for their defeat, began to use ridicule without mercy, during the early years of the Restoration doggerel versus ridiculing Puritanism, and burlesque, that island a ridiculous representation of serious subjects, or a serious representation of ridiculous subjects, were the most popular form of literature with London society. Of all this burlesque and doggerel the most famous is Butler's Hudibras, a work to which we can trace many of the prejudices that still prevail against Puritanism. Of Butler himself we know little, he is one of the most obscure figures in our literature. During the days of Cromwell's protectorate he was in the employ of Sir Samuel Luke, a crabbed and extreme type of Puritan nobleman and here he collected his material and probably wrote the first part of his burlesque, which, of course, he did not dare to publish until after the restoration. Hudibras is plainly modeled upon the Don Quixote of Cervantes. It describes the adventures of the fanatical justice of the peace, Sir Hudibras, and of his squire, Ralpho, in their endeavor to put down all innocent pleasures. In Hudibras and Ralpho the two extreme types of the Puritan party, Presbyterians and Independents, are mercilessly ridiculed. When the poem first appeared in public, in 1663, after circulating secretly for years in manuscript, it became at once enormously popular. The king carried a copy in his pocket, and courtiers vied with each other in quoting its most scurrilous passages. A second and a third part, continuing the adventures of Hudibras, were published in 1664 and 1668. At best the work is a wretched doggerel but it was clever enough and strikingly original, and since it expressed the royalist spirit towards the Puritans, it speedily found its place in a literature which reflects every phase of human life. A few odd lines are given here to show the character of the work, and to introduce the reader to the best-known burlesque in our language, he was in logic a great critic, profoundly skilled in analytic, he could distinguish, and divide a hair twixt south and southwest side, on either which he would dispute, confute change hands, and still confute, he'd undertake to prove, by force of argument, a man's no horse, he'd run in debt by disputation, and pay with ratiocination, for he was of that stubborn crew of errant saints, whom all men grant to be the true church militant, such as do build their faith upon the holy text of Pike and Dunn, decide all controversies by infallible artillery, and prove their doctrine orthodox by apostolic blows and knocks, compound for since they are inclined to by damning those they have no mind to. Hobbes and Locke. Thomas Hobbes 1588-1679 is one of the writers that puzzled the historian with a doubt as to whether or not he should be included in the story of literature. The one book for which he is famous is called Leviathan, or The Matter, Form, and Power of the Commonwealth 1651. It is partly political, partly a philosophical book, combining two central ideas which challenge and startle the attention. 
namely, that self-interest is the only guiding power of humanity, and that blind submission to rulers is the only true basis of government. In a word, Hobbes reduced human nature to its purely animal aspects, and then asserted confidently that there was nothing more to study. Certainly, therefore, as a reflection of the underlying spirit of Charles and his followers it has no equal in any purely literary work of the time. John Locke 1632-1704 is famous as the author of a single great philosophical work, The Essay Concerning Human Understanding 1690. This is a study of the nature of the human mind and of the origin of ideas, which, far more than the work of Bacon and Hobbes, is the basis upon which English philosophy has since been built. Aside from their subjects, both works are models of the new prose, direct, simple, convincing, for which Dryden and the Royal Society labored. They are known to every student of philosophy, but are seldom included in a work of literature. Evelyn and Pepys, these two men, John Evelyn 1620-1706 and Samuel Pepys 1633-1703, are famous as the writers of diaries, in which they jotted down the daily occurrences of their own lives, without any thought that the world would ever see or be interested in what they had written. Evelyn was the author of Silva, the first book on trees and forestry in English, and Terra, which is the first attempt at a scientific study of agriculture, but the world has lost sight of these two good books while it cherishes his diary, which extends over the greater part of his life and gives us vivid pictures of society in his time, and especially of the frightful corruption of the royal court. Pepys began life in a small way as a clerk in a government office, but soon rose by his diligence and industry to be secretary of the admiralty. Here he was brought into contact with every grade of society, from the king's ministers to the poor sailors of the fleet, being inquisitive as a blue jay. He investigated the rumors and gossip of the court, as well as the small affairs of his neighbors, and wrote them all down in his diary with evident interest, but because he chattered most freely, and told his little book a great many secrets which it were not well for the world to know, he concealed everything in shorthand, and here again he was like the blue jay, which carries off and hides every bright trinket it discovers. The diary covers the years from 1660 to 1669 and gossips about everything, from his own position and duties at the office, his dress and kitchen and cook and children, to the great political intrigues of office and the scandals of high society. No other such minute picture of the daily life of an age has been written, yet for a century and a half it remained entirely unknown, and not until 1825 was Pepys's shorthand deciphered and published, since then it has been widely read and is still one of the most interesting examples of diary writing that we possess. Following are a few extracts, covering only a few days in April, 1663, from which one may infer the minute and interesting character of the work that this clerk, politician, president of the Royal Society, and general busybody wrote to please himself, April 1st, I went to the temple to my cousin Roger Pepys, to see and talk with him a little, who tells me that, with much ado, the Parliament do agree to throw down Popery, but he says it is with so much spite and passion, and an endeavor of bringing all nonconformists into the same condition, that he is afeard matters will not go so well as he could wish. To my office all the afternoon, Lord, how Sir James, like a mad coxcomb, did swear and stamp, swearing that Commissioner Pet hath still the old heart against the kin that ever he had, and all the damnable reproaches in the world, at which I was ashamed but said little, but, upon the whole, 
I find him still a fool, led by the nose with stories told by Sir W. Baden, whether with or without reason, so, vexed in my mind to see things ordered so unlike gentlemen, or men of reason, I went home and to bed, 3D, to Whitehall and to Chapel, which being most monstrous full, I could not go into my pew, but sat among the choir, Dr. Creighton, the Scotchman, preached a most admirable, good, learned, honest, and most severe sermon, yet comic hall, he railed bitterly ever and anon against John Calvin and his brood, the Presbyterians, and against the present term, now in use, of tender consciences, he ripped up Hugh Peters calling him the execrable skellum, his preaching and stirring up the maids of the city to bring in their bodkins and thimbles, thence going out of Whitehall, I met Captain Grove, who did give me a letter directed to myself from himself, I deserved money to be in it, and took it, knowing, as I found it to be, the proceed of the place I have got him, the taking up of vessels for Tangier, but I did not open it till I came home to my office, and there I broke it open, not looking into it till all the money was out, that I might say I saw no money in the paper, if ever I should be questioned about it, there was a piece of gold and foil in silver, forth, to my office, home to dinner, whither by and by comes Roger Peeps, etc. Very merry at, before, and after dinner, and the more for that my dinner was great, and most neatly dressed by our own only matey, we had a fricassee of rabbits and chickens, a leg of mutton boiled, three carps in a dish, a great dish of a side of lamb, a dish of roasted pigeons, a dish of four lobsters, three tarts, a lamprey pie a most rare pie, a dish of anchovies, good wine of several sorts, and all things mighty noble and to my great content, fifth lord's day, up and spent the morning, till the barber came, in reading in my chamber part of Osborne's advice to his son, which I shall not never enough admire for sense and language, and being by and by trimmed, to church, myself, wife, Ashwell, etc. home and, while dinner was prepared, to my office to read over my vows with great affection and to very good purpose, then to church again, where a simple bawling young Scot preached, 19th Easter day, up and this day put on my close knee colored suit, which, with new stockings of the color, with belt and new gilt-handled sword, is very handsome, to church alone, and after dinner to church again, where the young Scotchman preaching, I slept all the while, after supper, fell in discourse of dancing, and I find that Ashwell hath a very fine carriage, which makes my wife almost ashamed of herself to see herself so outdone, but tomorrow she begins to learn to dance for a month or two, so to prayers and to bed, will being gone, with my leave, to his father's this day for a day or two, to take physic these holy days, 23d, St. George's Day and Coronation, the king and court being at Windsor, at the installing of the king of Denmark by proxy and the Duke of Monmouth, spent the evening with my father, at cards till late, and being at supper, my boy being sent for some mustard to a neat's tongue, the rogue stayed half an hour in the streets, it seems at a bonfire, at which I was very angry, and resolved to beat him tomorrow, 24th, up betimes, and with my salt Ely went down into the parlor and there got my boy and did beat him till I was fain to take breath two or three times, yet for all I am afeard it will make the boy never the better, he is grown so hardened in his tricks, which I am sorry for, he being capable of making a brave man, and is a boy that I and my wife love very well. Summary of the Restoration Period, 
The chief thing to note in England during the Restoration is the tremendous social, 